0: Hey, look, if you like Mind Pump, if you're a fan of Mind Pump and you want to be on our show and you own one of our MAPS workout programs, email us at admin at rhinopros.com. That's R-H-I-N-O-P-R-O-S.com. Make sure you put in the subject line, I want to be on the show.
1: If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts. Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. You are listening to Mind Pump, the world's
0: number one fitness, health, and entertainment podcast. In this episode, we talk to one of our favorite guests, the author of the Genius Foods book and the Genius Life, Max Lugavere. He's actually the host of the podcast, the Genius Life podcast. Now, in this episode, we talk about why counting calories and even counting macros can make you fat. Uh, so we know you're going to love this episode. We cover a lot of topics. If you're somebody who's struggling with fat loss or your health, your counting calories, can't, counting macros, not working for you, or you're thinking about doing those things, you will not want to miss this episode with Max Lugavere. By the way, uh, I've been a regular guest on his podcast. I'm going to be getting on there again soon. Make sure you go check him out, the Genius Life podcast. You can also find Max on Instagram at Max Lugavere. Lugavir spelled L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. Also, uh, this month, we're doing a huge promotion on our at-home workout programs. This is our holiday ultimate at-home bundle. This includes Maps Anywhere and Maps Suspension. Both programs require minimal equipment. So Maps Anywhere requires resistance bands, a broomstick, and your body weight. Full body workout, great for building muscle, burning body fat. MAPS suspension requires just suspension trainers. Again, it's another full body workout. You can get both programs right now for only $99.99, but there's more. We're also including MAPS HIT. HIT stands for High Intensity Interval Training. This is a program designed to burn the maximum amount of calories in the minimum amount of time. Okay, so 20, 30 minute high-intensity interval training workouts that burn tremendous amounts of calories. This program also, minimal equipment. All three programs can be done at home. Get all three of them for $99.99, that's it. They normally retail at $291. If you wanna sign up, go to mapsnovember.com. That's M-A-P-S, November.com. Oh, and one last thing, this comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can actually sign up, follow the workouts for a full month, if they don't blow your mind, return them for a full refund. Mr. Max, yo, yo. always a blast having you here in the studio. I love being here with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I like about you is that you are – because the, you know, you, when you look at the, the fitness, health, wellness space, and it sucks that I have to name all three of those or whatever, you, you see a lot of these camps, and you are in the health – I would say health and wellness camp, but you're so science-based at the same time. And it is a little uh, interesting to me how some people may – Take you at. There are some people on social media that try to put you in a a box of like non-science. Yeah, pseudoscience guys. Pseudoscience, which is so false because everything you say, everything you talk about, although it is wellness and health backed, um, is always backed by by science. Um, One of the biggest things in the, I guess, the fitness space, where they, they call themselves the science people, is like calories and macros and that's the most important thing you talk about a lot of the other stuff uh that's important but um i do want to talk about wh- how it makes you feel that you are you still getting you are mark. you still
2: getting beat up on social media do you yeah. still get people how's that even trolls? possible how can yeah. he not like you
0: yeah no i don't know i mean i
3: i had an experience the other day where i posted something it was like a sponsored post you know we all have to make a, a living and i posted something where i i like to think that i i and, you know, we can always improve at our at our craft and in our professions. But I like to think that I'm very balanced and fair and I don't make outlandish claims in my posts, no matter what I'm talking about. And I posted about a supplement that um, I've started experimenting with. And I talked about the the science underlying the supplement, not making any claims about what the supplement could do for you, not and, and not telling my audience to go out and buy it. Just saying, if you want to learn more, you can go to this website. And somebody, you know, a well-known figure, we'll say, in the fitness space, came over and said... Or somebody, no, somebody tagged this person, which is usually how it happens. Somebody, somebody, somebody left the tag and said, fact check, please to this person. And they come over and not just, fa- they, they left like a personal, they said, if it's, well, if it's coming from Max, then there's probably a little truth in it you know, or something (laughs) like that. That's what they said. And I was like, so I was so taken aback by that because we've never actually had like a one on one interaction or anything like that. And I wasn't making any crazy, any crazy claims in my post. So it just, you know, further proved to me that there is this divide um, that you, that you just mentioned Sal, in the fitness space. Um, And, and, and it's what separates, I think the rest of us um, who are out there trying to provide like pragmatic and practical information, you know, out to the public. Not to say that that sponsored post was like the best example of me offering uh, practical health and wellness advice to to my to my audience, but um, but I think that we need to have room and are when we're talking about dietary and lifestyle interve- interventions for the question marks that there are in science. You know, and and pragmatic philosophical approaches that ultimately are what guide people when they're making decisions at checkout. Mm. You know, these are not always data driven decisions that we make at the end of the day. And so I think to be bound by the evidence um, to me underserves the public.
0: Well, there was one, there's one example of kind of what you're talking about. And I love using this example because as a, as a trainer, you know, uh, when I got into fitness, when you first become a trainer, you get certified, you read, you know, your, your books and then you pass your tests. And initially you start out and you look at your clients like this, like, okay, we're going to get you to burn more calories. I'm going to help you track your food. You're going to follow this meal plan, and then you're going to get all the results you want. That's all you got. Just do what I tell you. You're going to get all the results you want. Well, five years into it, you realize it's a terrible approach. This is not successful. Some people get results, but they all you know, come back. Uh, everybody gains the weight back. This is a uh, just a bad approach. So there's this one town, and I don't know where it was, but they passed a law uh, where they required all the restaurants, including the fast food restaurants, to post the calories of all the meals that they offered. And they thought, because they thought, if mm-hmm. people were just informed- That
2: would deter them from, you know- This was before they made it a law? Is this what you're talking about? No,
0: this, this was in this town. They were experimenting with this law. Because
2: that's a law now. Yeah, right? Some, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so they said, oh, if people are informed, then they'll eat less, and mm-hmm. it's calories. And this this is going to help people lose weight. So they did this. They put this up in these these restaurants- and then they came back later on and found that people, the restaurants that posted the calories, people were actually eating more calories after they saw the calorie counts. And they thought, this, how does it, this doesn't make any sense. Why, why are people eating more now that they actually see displayed in front of them the calories associated with the meals that they're eating? Now, as a coach, as a trainer, when I read this, I thought it's obvious because I know I, by this point I had understood behavior. And I knew that rather than people going to the restaurant and saying – I could get the burger that's 800 calories or the salad that's 400 calories. I'll get the salad that'll save me 400 calories. Instead, this is what people do. Wow, the burger's only 400 more calories. I'll just get that. (laughs) Because they had no idea, no concept, and it doesn't really mean much because 400 calories doesn't sound like that much. And if I can eat the thing that tastes better, that's what I'm. And that's what ended up uh, happening. Now, you got into this not because you were trying to help people get ripped or aesthetic, but rather from a health perspective. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, I was, um, you know, growing up, I was into bodybuilding and fitness, but, uh, but my, my entry point, my on-ramp into doing this professionally and, and publicly, uh, was the fact that I got to witness my mother getting ill and, um, and, and ultimately passing. And I think that it's, you know, it's, it's obviously the greatest tragedy that i've that I've ever experienced, but it's also a privilege in a way because it's showed me what really matters. And that to me, is what sort of guides my philosophy and my approach to life. It's not, you know, getting twelve pack like shredded abs, you know, which I think is a is a great worthy goal for anybody that wants that. But that's not really, what I think the public needs. You know, we look at data now suggesting that 12% of people have good metabolic health. And so to me, I think there's a real public health crisis that's going on. And I don't think that the way to solve that crisis is with like... Spreadsheets, you know, and macro counting and calorie counting and, and the like. I think that there's a, a there's certainly a place for that. I think for people that are that take their fitness really seriously and are trying to hit goals that that are probably so far out of reach for your average person, but that they choose to you know maybe go from fourteen percent body fat to eleven percent body fat, you know, or ten percent. Like for that, you need a certain level of diligence. But that's not really the kind of audience that I'm necessarily trying to reach. I think that those. Those those people are very well suited by the content that you guys create, for example, Mm. you know, but um, but I've sort of been honed by my experience with my mom. I've been very, very lucky in that I get to go on TV shows like the Dr. Oz show, the Rachel Ray show where I get to speak to a really large audience and I go on those shows which are taped in front of live audiences and I see the kinds of people sitting in the audiences Mm. live at those shows and they they're the sweetest people, but so many of them are struggling with problems related to their weight. You know that so many of them are overweight, many of them are over are obese, and we know according to the data that by the year twenty thirty, it's projected that one in two people are not just going to be overweight but obese. So. I don't think that calorie counting really plays a role here, you know, or, or, or ought to play a role here. I think we need to know more about how foods affect our behavior, you know, with a, with a little bit of knowledge and insight into how food affects our cravings and our satiety checkpoints. I think that really can move the needle in a big way on this, on this crisis. Well
2: I think of a different analogy than the one that Sal gave. I think of like all these lost souls that you're talking about the 80 what 88% of the, the population that are just don't have an idea or a clue and it's like handing all of them a bunch of tom-toms. Or giving them like a, you know, a, your Google Maps or whatever. You and just ate, You dated yourself Tom. It's still around. Garmin's and Tom Tom's are still around. Doug, right? Save me here. I have no idea. Oh, Wait, honestly, go, Adam. Fucking Doug. <laughs>
0: Navigation <laughs> devices. Yeah, you know what I mean? You know yeah. Mountaineer
2: still is No, so. am I might not? Yeah. But that's to me, that's what it's like, yeah. right? So, you know, because it's not that that doesn't work, right? If you wanted to lose 30 pounds and you calculate your macros and you track and you weigh all your food, um, it's a it's a very good approach to get there. Just to, like, t- typing in the address to a location that you need to get and having navigation is going to get there. But the reality of it, you, you have to learn. You're gonna at one point. You need to learn good practices and behaviors, and learn about you know just the the basics, and get a good grasp and understanding of how you should be taking care of your body. Otherwise, you're just kind of giving people the answers to the test, and that in itself becoming dependent on that all the time. Very similar to and I and I speak to that one because this one is crazy for me. Like I remember when I first realized that um i i have lost this this sense of direction as a young kid growing up before the tom tom and the garments came out i was really good with knowing how to get around and then i become so i became so dependent on that that i i can't even get around my little town without using it all the time and so i think of that analogy when i think of clients that i would tell you know eat this many grams of protein eat this many grams of carbohydrates eat this many calories and hold them accountable to that it's like Am I really teaching them how to be healthy, and are they really going to do that? You know what, that, long term, that brings mm. me to
0: something too because I've seen you talk about this on social media, in uh, Max, and actually getting debates with people. the The whole like calorie worshipers, the macro worshippers, well, that's everything. The people in the in the fitness space that believe that that is the most and only important thing. Um, they they think that it's just that, and they don't realize that there are other factors that can contribute to. Uh, poor health, that other factors that don't contain calories, and something that they say. Um, a lot is that there are no good or bad foods, you know, yeah. uh, there, food, there are, food is food. And if it's, <laughs> if you're eating too many calories, it's bad. If you're not, then it's just fine. Chemicals and molecules. And I see you saying on your posts, like, no, there are foods that are bad. There are foods that are good. Like, tell me a little bit about that. that
3: well, issue. like, I mean, what is our definition of food is it like it's just something edible, something that we can put into our face holes and, and, and digest <laughs> without killing ourselves. So by that definition, play dough is food. Right. Because Play-Doh is basically pure gluten um, and you can eat it. Gluten is like obviously a protein found in bread. You can eat paste. I too. definitely ate that as a kid. It's, but that, <laughs> that, a lot. that statement that there's no said that like food is food. To me, it's as, that's almost as infuriating as that meme that you always see on f- fitness accounts on social media that carbs don't make you fat protein doesn't make you fat, fat doesn't make you fat, eating too many calories makes you fat. I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's a mathematical fact, but that doesn't give me the advice. If I'm an overweight person eating ad libitum ultra processed foods day in and day out, that doesn't tell me anything, you know, practical about how to shed the pounds, shed the weight. You know what am I supposed to do? Open up a you know like go into my Google Docs, start a spreadsheet, and start counting calories. I think people need to know about how foods affect their behavior. And in a time when sixty percent of the calories that we consume come from these ultra processed foods, I think it's a it's first of all it's it's completely anti science to say that there's no such thing as a good and bad food. And an anti in an ad libitum feeding environment, there are good bo- good foods and there are bad foods. And the and the bad foods are the foods that drive you to overeat. These are the ultra processed foods that by the time you've eaten them to satiety, you've already Overconsume them, you know, foods like,
0: Oh wait, so let's back up. So that's a very powerful statement. So some foods, when you eat them until you feel full, the way that they've been made or engineered, they've actually made you eat more calories than you need because what they moved that bar that bar of how you feel that that fullness
3: yeah because they because they're so not satiate they're not satiating and they're highly calorie dense and so there was this amazing study that was published in 2018 Kevin Hall was the lead researcher he's a highly regarded obesity researcher and and what they found was that in an ad libitum feeding environment when you give subjects ultra processed foods to consume they end up consume, to the to the same degree of satiety as they would on a minimally processed food diet they eat about 500 Excess calories per day. And if you stretch that out over the course of a week, that's a pound of weight gain every single week. Um, And then when they did, it was a crossover trial. So when they put those same subjects on a minimally processed food diet, um, they found that they actually came in at a calorie deficit, like naturally. And these were, again, ad libitum, what's so important about that, that term, what that means, it's a free eating environment. So they're able to eat as much as they want. They're able to eat to satiety, to satisfaction. And so I think that's really important because at the end of the day, like, you know, you don't want to have to rely on your willpower to reach your ideal body composition or your ideal metabolic health because willpower is a fleeting resource. It's a limited resource. Um, You know, it's a, it's a muscle that for the most part is fighting a losing battle in the context of the modern
2: food environment. You also don't want to have to pull out your scale and calculator every single time you're about to eat for the rest of your life too. Not only that, but there's a huge margin of
3: error on, on, on what we believe to be Calories in and the calories in calories out, Mm -hmm. you know, portion of the equation, right? Like nutrition, nutrition facts labels are not always super accurate. Also, depending on the nature of the food itself, you're absorbing or not absorbing a significant portion of calories. For example, the USDA uh, just published a study where they found that um, whole nuts. When you eat a a, a handful of whole nuts, you're actually only absorbing about seventy to 80% of those calories, contrary to what was previously thought that you absorbed 100% of those calories. So, so if you're counting the calories of the nuts that you're eating, for example, that's not an accurate number because, because whole undigested particles of those nuts flow through you Mm. without being actually absorbed. But if you're looking at ultra processed foods, for example, foods made of refined grain flour, or even like these, some of these keto foods, you know, I'm not like, turning a blind eye to like, you know, these ultra processed keto or paleo approved foods, you're absorbing 100% of the calories in those foods.
2: Well, not only that, not only are you absorbing all of them, but they all FDA allows them to be manipulated by like 30%. You know that the labels can be up to 30% Hmm. wrong. So if and and of course if they are marketing themselves as a health food, they're going to lean on that direction, right? So if I'm trying to say I'm low calorie, low carb, low fat, low sugar, whatever, they're they're going to be pushing the boundaries on the the percentage they can get away with. So if the FDA says, "Okay, you can get away with Thirty percent up or down on these calories. I'm promoting myself as a as a a health food. I'm obviously going to put lower, and so yeah. Not only are you going to eat more, but you're also also digesting and also uh, getting in more calories than what it's even telling you. Yeah, yeah. And I and I understand completely
3: the if it fits your macros fitness movement. Mm -hmm. Like you know, for people who are fitness professionals. Like, like you guys, for example, you know, that, that have really specific body, you know, goals and you're, you're super diligent about tracking and you enjoy eating pizza or donuts or whatever, whatever, whatever that happens to be. Then I, of course, I understand that you can get that done. Like you can, that's one, one road up the mountain, right? I just don't see that as being a solution for people at large. And so when I see people with big profiles promoting this idea that all foods are the same there's no such thing as a good and bad food fat doesn't make you fat Cal- you know carbs don't make you fat you know it's only calories that we need to be concerned about to me that's a, a public health disservice
0: now in mm. in the context of normal calories right so let's say you're eating appropriately uh are there still things that tend to because pre- you use the term you said something about meta people are metabolically i don't remember we say you say. 12 percent of americans uh have met good metabolic health yeah okay now, this is what's interesting to me. 12% of Americans have good metabolic health. That does not mean that 88% of Americans are overweight or obese because it's actually a smaller number than that. That means that there's a good chunk of people who are a good body weight but still have poor metabolic health. So they're eating adequate calories, but they're, metabolically they appear to be uh, obese or unhealthy.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you guys have had clients that were skinny fat, right? The medical term for that is normal weight, metabolically obese. So people, there's a I don't know the exact uh, proportion, but there's a significant, um, small but significant proportion of people who are of normal weight who, you know, when you look under the hood, you see that they have all kinds of, you know, uh, you know, biomarkers suggestive of metabolic problems. Whether it's, you know, high fasting insulin, high fasting glucose, chronically elevated insulin, chronically elevated, you know, blood sugar. Um, low HDL, high LDL. Like there's all these things, you know. There's all these like numbers that you can look for that, you know, provide the the, the picture that forms the constellation that a physician would then use to diagnose metabolic syndrome, for example. Um, but that is to say that looking in the mirror is not always the best. Um, litmus test for how you're doing internally. Well, now- what,
0: are, what are the foods that can contribute to that? Because let's say you are eating good calories. What are foods that... Right. What's the theory?
2: Is that if you if you are able to maintain a, a, a quote-unquote healthy weight, but then you are, you know, metabolically you're hurting, what is, what is probably causing that then?
3: What's causing the, the metabolic uh, dysregulation? I mean, it could be any number of things. It could be just, you know, eating... Uh, all kinds of you know processed foods that are causing your insulin levels to stay up throughout the you know the whole period of the day. It could be circadian disruption. It could be you know overexposure to environmental toxins, which play a role in you know metabolic health. I mean, there's evidence that um, exposure to BPA can actually alter insulin responses in the body. BPA, bisphenol A, it's a plasticizing compound that you're exposed to when you, you know, heat food and plastic, for example, or when you touch store register receipts, there is evidence that that, you know, in a dose that is a reasonable dose to, you know, to expect a human to be exposed to today, that that can affect the way in, the, horm- the hormone insulin functions in the body. And insulin is, you know, it's obviously a fat storage hormone, but it's also imp- important in, in metabolism and, you know, for metabolic health.
2: Well, I- how much do like micronutrients play a factor in obesity as well?
3: Um, I think that micronutrients are super important. Uh, you know, when it comes to fat loss, fat gain, um, I think it's, it's probably, you're probably better suited looking at the big picture, you know, the bigger picture macronutrients. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, minerals like magnesium, magnesium is, is super important for metabolic health. I mean, it, magnesium is a cofactor for hundreds of enzymatic reactions in the body. And some of those are involved in energy production, like ATP production. So um, so, you know, I think uh, obviously being nutritionally replete is, is important as well.
0: You know, what's interesting about what you're saying is that I would even, I would imagine that somebody who was of normal body weight, but metabolically unhealthy, right? So they have all the markers that you might see in someone who's obese, but they're normal weight, that sounds like a very dangerous, uh, it could be a dangerous situation because they may, they might not even be prompted to get checked out. They exactly. may think that they're mm-hmm. perfectly fine because they look fine you know, in the mirror, and that, uh, that could be a problem. What about macronutrients? Uh, like, uh, we'll talk about carbohydrates for a second, but sugars specifically. Do sugars have worse effects on the body generally because we hear a lot of debate around that like you you hear the sugar is bad for you it's evil and then we hear the other side that says sugar's fine so long as your calories <laughs> aren't high like what's the deal with that
3: well added sugar for one is not satiating at all right so it provides mm-hmm. no satiety benefit and yet it's empty calories and as i mentioned we now live in a world where so many of us are struggling with you know, our ever expanding waistlines. And also to Justin's point, 90% of us are deficient in at least one essential nutrient. So to me, in an environment where we're overfed and undernourished, you know, like being, being an apologist for added sugar to me is again, another public health disservice, which we, Mm -hmm. which I see all the time in the fitness space. Um, is a, is a little bit of added sugar bad if you're if you're working out all the time and you're super active? You're getting your ten thousand steps a day or, or whatever the recommendation is. No, I don't think that it's it's that that huge of a deal. But if you have you know glucose homeostasis problems, if you you know if you have glucose tolerance issues, then added sugar and and really starchy, high carbohydrate foods, I think, can be very problematic because your your blood sugar then will become elevated higher and stay elevated longer than it will for somebody who has normal glucose uh, regulation.
0: What are some of the best satiety uh, producing you know, macronutrients or foods? Like, what, what have you seen in terms of things that people can eat that'll help them naturally want to eat less?
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like preaching to the choir a little bit, but protein is, you know, by and large, I think it's the most important macronutrient to be aware of, to, to, to know what a powerful tool is protein is for satiating your hunger it's, it's so important. It's the most satiating macronutrient. When you under eat protein, you're going to eat more carbs and fat. And you know, when you both in the short-term and the long-term protein is the most satiating. So when I'm, you know, when I have like a hunger pang, I reach for high protein foods. And I also know that it's a lot, um, it's a lot more difficult for me to pump the brakes when I'm snacking on foods that are low in protein and high in carbs and fat. So these are, I mean, typical junk foods, right? Like, um, chips paleo puffs doritos whatever you want to call them like low protein foods tend to be junk foods junk foods tend to be low protein foods and um and i think that there's a reason why they are so hyper palatable why they're so addictive and why ultimately they underlie the obesity epidemic i think. Um, So I think reaching for protein, that's uh, that's major. And then also there are non-dietary things as well that I think we need to be talking about, you know, in the same breath, like sleep. The fact that so many of us are underslept these days, you know, when you're underslept, you tend to crave more junk food the next day. Um,
0: what's the reason behind that? Is that because it it, it produces more the feel good chemicals because you feel crappy from not getting good sleep. So you eat the hyper palatable stuff to get mm -hmm. your serotonin levels. What are are the, what are the theories behind that?
3: Well, I think there's an endocrine component to it. So, you know, when you're underslept just after on one night of poor sleep, you're basically pre-diabetic the next day. So it affects your, how your you know, the hormone insulin really functions. I think it also affects, um, leptin and ghrelin, you know, and there's, a lot of these hormones are influenced by circadian rhythms. And when you are underslept, I mean, sleep is the master hormonal regulator. And so, aside from that, I think there's a neurobiological component as well. So, when you undersleep, um, there's less activity in the front part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is sort of the, the home of decision making um, and executive function. And so, when you are underslept, you basically have a brain that's operating more primally and it wants things that it's that are going to comfort it um that are more essential to survival so essentially sugar um and uh and and you know hyper palatable foods fatty foods um as well emotional regulation becomes a lot more difficult when you're underslept and and that's that sense of willpower you know like i think uh there was a, there, there was an experience that I had very early on. It doesn't really have anything to do with food, but I went through a breakup and I and I had this subjective experience where I realized I learned that on days that I was underslept it was a lot more difficult for me to deal with the the emotions that I was feeling
0: <laughs> yeah, you know true. when
3: I when I went through when I was going through that breakup and so I think the same thing happens with food. It's just like when we're underslept, you know our hormones are all dysregulated. And uh, and our brain just doesn't it's not like working in our, you know, that that subconscious hunger just isn't working in our favor. It's working against us. Well
2: you're us. you're not now you're moving in the direction that I, I like to talk. Right now we've been talking a lot about, you know, calories and, and macros and micronutrients, but really to me the stuff that really made the difference with clients was was teaching them the behaviors. And that's the stuff that I feel like the fitness space the 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 body devoid builders. of it. Yeah, we just don't, we don't talk about that. It's like, okay, we can weigh and measure your food all day long, but one of the things I remember seeing happen when I was competing was I, I was blown away. I remember telling these guys uh, when I got into it, we were, we were all hanging out together, and, we, and I was in the middle of uh, competing in men's physique. And I remember coming back and telling them, I said, dude, I have seen more eating disorders in this competitive bodybuilding world than I had previously seen in you know almost two decades of training average clients. And that blew my mind because we look at their bodies, right? We look at them and they look amazing. They're on covers of magazines. Everyone's following them, taking their advice. But the reality is it's uh, the relationship, it it, it promotes this this binge and restrict behavior. And forget the, the science of the calories and the measuring and the weighing and the macro micro. It's like when you tell somebody and you have them restrict like that and they are calculating their weighing and they're staying so dialed in, you create this behavior of I can't I can't have this, I can't have this, I can't have this, is bad, this is what, and then you finally break, which everybody eventually does, and a lot of times, and the, the, when you see it in the competitive world, when they break, it's after they did their show, they've disciplined themselves for two months, three months, maybe even six months long to get to that goal, and then they just cut loose, and I'd see guys and girls put 20, 30 pounds on in like four days. I mean, that's just insane to me. And that's a, that's obviously an example of like an exaggerated version of what most people go through. But I think they go through a, a, a similar thing of going through this, okay, I'm on a diet now. It's New Year's resolution. Let me start weighing my food. I'm going to have these salads. I'm going to exercise every single day. And all it does is it promotes this binge restrict behavior. And I think that is the more important conversation than even getting down to this calorie and Macro talk.
0: Oh, totally. You talked about protein, Max. I'll give you an example of of what Adam's talking about. So I figured this out later on as a trainer, but I would tell clients because protein is very satiating, right? I would tell clients hit your protein goals. Don't worry about anything else, and naturally they would eat less. Naturally, mm. just because it because I know it was so it, so satiety producing. So I'd say whenever you have your meal, eat your protein first in your meal. So if your goal is 25 grams of protein per meal or whatever. Eat that first, then eat the rest, and Super then, smart. and they would just naturally lose weight. And they thought, "Oh, the protein's making me lose weight." No, it's because of the it, it produces more satiety. Now that advice, because you are in the wellness space, sometimes that does put you at odds with the vegan and vegetarians, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah,
3: it does. I like p- p- people from all these different factions like like to come out and attack me, yeah, but, what's the deal with that? What? but I don't, I don't care. I'm just trying, you know, like bring it on. I'm it's just, cause you're handsome, bro. I'm just, I <laughs> I'm mean, it's that's, that's working <laughs> against you trying to trying to keep up with the, with the looks of you guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah. Protein I think is, is incredible. Is incredibly important and I appreciate it and I value it. Um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, this whole, this whole low protein diet cult to me, is something that I think is another thing that's that's harming people. First of all, we don't know like the the results of taking somebody who lives in a first world country, who's exposed to you know the modern the standard American diet, and then is told to eat a low protein diet, and then eats a low protein version of the standard American diet. I mean, to me, that just sounds like a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. And there's really no good evidence that low protein diets. Um, promote longevity or health. In fact, people over 65 who eat higher protein have greater longevity and reduced risk for cancer. So, um, so I don't. I think that that's just a uh, uh, yeah, not smart. Also, there's this concept of anabolic resistance, which I'm sure that you guys can speak to. Mm-hmm. But but um, as we get older, we probably need to consume more protein to maintain our muscle mass. Um, so I think that that's these are non-trivial points. Not that, to mention that need when to I be look addressed.
2: when we when we look back at our clients, it's it was the number one uh, macronutrient that I had to address with all clients. I, it, normal people. The only people I ever had to say eat less protein to were some bodybuilding fanatics that I adopted. Like if I got you and you had been bodybuilding for three years, and for some reason eating you know three grams of protein for every pound of body weight, I would end up telling you to scale back because that's why you're having a hard time shitting and you're all those issues with your digestion because of how much you're eating. Everybody else, every other male and female that has just came in for overall health or losing weight or wanting to put a little bit of muscle on or work on their mobility every one of their diets that I assessed all under consumed protein mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's for sure now, one of the most
3: neglected it's now, hard to do there's um there's this uh, researcher Bill Campbell who uh, I follow on social media he's like pretty well known in the in the bodybuilding fitness space he's like a body composition scientist and he um, he posted this he did this like little study with his students where he asked them all to try to consume one gram of protein per pound of body weight and he said that only about half of them could adhere to it because it's just so damn hard to do mm-hmm. it's so hard to do because it's so satiating
0: mm, yeah it is it, it, along 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 those lines, uh, with, with protein, let's say I have two pieces of meat, uh, equal calories, uh, equal grams of proteins, macros, all that stuff. One is, you know, what people might say in your space, especially high quality, uh, grass fed. The animal was in good conditions. The other one, factory produced, grain fed. What are the differences? They got the same calories, same protein, same fats. Are there any differences? Uh, with a grass fed with a more more proper. Yeah. I mean, I think that
3: I think, you know, obviously in an ideal world, we're all consuming 100% grass fed beef, pasture raised eggs and free range chicken or, you know, things like that. But I also, and this is where like the paleo people will come at me. I I also feel, and, and I've become a lot more moderate in my stance over time because you know, I truly believe that like, if you live in a part of the country, like a food desert, where you don't have access to 100% grass fed beef, for example, um, is, is eating grain fed beef bad for you. And my answer to that is no, I think that it's, it's a much better option even than, you know, boxed Mac and cheese, which is, I think, you know, the kind of food that, that, you know, it basically typifies ultra processed foods, foods, which many people are eating, you know, for all meals of the day. And so you know, regular, as much as I, I would never get behind and endorse factory farmed meat. I just can't do that from an ethical standpoint because, you know, it's so cruel to the animals. Like it, uh, it's still a, one of the most nutrient dense foods available right. to, to most people. And thank, you know, uh, we love to talk about the, you know, the harms of modern food production and the modern food environment. Right. But like the food system is also, it's pretty great in that anybody, anywhere can, can access beef you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and chicken and things like that, or eggs, you know, conventional eggs. Like I, you know, I don't buy conventional eggs because I just know that, you know, they've, they just how they're, how they're produced, you know, like the, the, the chicken has been reduced to this egg laying machine and they're kept in these awful crates and whatever. But that being said, like even a conventional egg is still an amazingly nutrient dense food
0: Mm. now, but there are some, some, some small differences though, right? Like if I had a pasture, you know, raised egg, versus a conventional egg, what would I see nutrient-wise difference?
3: Well, you can always tell the, the, how healthy the chicken was by the, the, the robustness of the shell of the egg. So if you take a conventional egg, you'll notice that the shells are very, very thin and brittle. Oh, interesting. Yeah, whereas a pasture-raised egg, the, the shells are really hard to crack. And this is like no joke. Um, there's just, they have higher mineral density like in the in the eggshells. Um, you can also tell from the, uh, the color of the yolk um, a pastured egg is going to have like a much darker, almost orangish hue to the yolk. And that's due to the higher presence of carotenoids. Carotenoids are plant pigments, which basically accumulate in the yolk and, uh, they protect neural tissue. So it's actually interesting. If you consider the fact that an embryo in an embryo, the nervous system is the first system to, to assemble. And the, the brain is obviously a part of the, it's a major component of the central nervous system that an egg yolk literally contains everything that nature has deemed important to grow a healthy brain. Mm. And so it's no wonder then that egg yolks are full of cholesterol. We know that the brain is full of cholesterol, choline, choline, Mm. um, omega-3 fatty acids like DHA, uh, but then also carotenoids, carotenoids, which are found in plants. This is another reason why I don't think I could ever fully get behind the carnivore diet because carotenoids are plant pigments Mm. and we know that they protect neural tissue and we, these were, they were first identified because we can see them in the eye. They protect the eyes. The eyes are basically just an extension of your brain, um, and, and contain neural tissue. But we now know that these same compounds accumulate in the brain where they protect brain cells from oxidative stress. They help, you know, maintain cognitive function as we age and they can actually even boost your cognitive function when you're young and healthy. So that's why I think, um, you know, looking, looking at egg yolks and making sure that they're really dark and, and, and and deeply orange, you know, in, in hue, is a sign of a healthy. I job.
0: can't eat conventional eggs anymore. Like, I'll, if I eat, if I crack a, a conventional egg with a past, next to a pasture, it just looks pale oh, and pale. anemic. And anemic, it yeah. does. Now, the differences in these nutrients on an on egg versus egg are they big or are they are they small?
3: Um, they're normally smaller. Yeah, I would say that they're. I mean, I would say that they're significant. You know you get, I believe it's something like 11 times the, the amount of DHA in a oh, pasture wow. egg compared mm, okay. to, yeah. Um, in, in absolute terms are, is the amount of DHA in an egg going to be comparable to what you get in just one piece of wild salmon, probably pretty small in comparison. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that there, there are big nutritional differences, same with, you know, grass-fed beef versus grain-fed beef, but we can't let, um, you know, we can't let, What's the term? You can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Or, oh, okay. yeah. Mm. You can't let perfect be the enemy of the good, right? So like even a, even a conventional egg is, I think, a great nutritional resource for people, right? Now,
2: uh, we've had, well, me personally, I've had a lot of clients that uh, are just like fixated on novelty And that's something that I've had to help kind of coach them through in terms of like trying to get uh, satiated. Uh, So novelty is one of those things. They're always trying to seek you know, what tastes the best. And that's like the the entire focus of like when they're
3: eating. So how do you address that? We're so spoiled humans. Like we always want like newer flavors. There's that famous Jerry Seinfeld quote, right? Like about men when they're watching TV, like men don't care what's on TV. They only yeah. want to know what else is on, right? <laughs> you know, it's the same thing about, it's the same, it's the same way that we approach our diets, but then you look at like an animal, like a cat or, or, you know, whatever who are they're content to eat the same thing day in and day out. But, um, but no, I think novelty is important, you know, switch things up, keep things interesting. Um, that's where I think, you know, learning how to cook is really valuable and learning how to take like simple ingredients and, and turn them into something transcendent. I really value like the way, uh, Mediterranean style cooking kind of kind of takes that approach. Same with Japanese cooking. Like there's endless novelty in Mediterranean and in Japanese cuisine, but they use basically just a handful of, of simple ingredients. I just
0: read an article that said that the Mediterranean – like when you're comparing like quote-unquote diets, that the Mediterranean diet uh, across the board seems to rank – consistently the highest or among the best in terms of health. Is that, are you familiar with that article? Yeah, the
3: Mediterranean diet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always cited as being one of the, one of the most protective and, and, you know, long, most longevity promoting diets out there. So, but the, there, there are other dietary patterns that are equally healthy, like the Japanese dietary pattern. Um, we just haven't studied it as much.
0: What are the, the, the characteristics of the Mediterranean diet? Like what are, what are, what's in there that is, that you think is promoting some of these, these health benefits?
3: Uh, I think the preponderance of, you know, minimally processed food, um, no unhealthy cooking oils. You know, like if you go to a a true Mediterranean kitchen, you won't find any canola oil. You won't find any corn oil, soybean oil, none of that garbage. Um, They're cooking primarily with extra virgin olive oil, and they also use extra virgin olive oil as a sauce i'm a huge extra virgin olive oil fan and um sometimes you get from the vegan community that uh, all oil is bad including olive oil which yeah. is a complete like Wait, I, didn't, I never heard
0: this vegans yeah, are saying that. that yeah they
3: have they have anti-oil there's like this sect it's like a sect of, of veganism <laughs> what? Of, of the, of the real plant. hardcore they're yeah. like you know yeah.
0: i like being vegan it's not extreme enough yeah i need to get more extreme <laughs> yes
3: yeah. exactly they're anti-oil and uh and um yeah so they like they they've banished all kinds of like liquid oils including extra virgin olive oil which to me makes no sense it's also not a science-based like that right there is a is a very blatant divergence from the science to say that extra virgin olive oil is not good for you it's, what's the reasoning behind this behind the no oil yeah i think it's, i think their claim is that it da- damages the endothelium or endothelial function which is how basically your arteries respond to environmental pressures um and, and are able to expand and contract uh you know, whenever you eat fat, it's going to fill your blood with triglycerides. You're going to see, you know, you would be able to see that on a blood draw. Uh, you know, I think most most recently that was illustrated in the you know documentary, and I'm using air quotes, Game Changers. Mm. Um, but the propaganda, yeah but that's totally normal. It's the same thing. Like when you eat something that's, we know that chronically elevated blood sugar is not good for you. Does that, does that mean that the occasional blood sugar spike is also not good for you? No, not necessarily because in a normal metabolically healthy body, you, your body brings the blood sugar right back down, right? Same thing with postprandial, a postprandial elevation in triglycerides. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, so I think that that, that sect has sort of, it's been a bit of a, uh, uh, a permutation from, or like, you know, it's sort of been this like extrapolation from, you know, the fact that, well, meat is high in fat. So we have to be against high fat diets. And if we're going to be against high fat diets then we have to be against pure oil. And so, but to me, none of it makes any sense. That's how ISIS was created.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, pretty
2: much. Yeah, it,
3: it basically is like the ISIS of the plant-based community. <laughs> These yeah. are the, they're yeah. like
0: carbs only. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything else is bad. Yeah. It seems to me because when you look at oils and you talked about the you know the bad oils, right, canola and some of those those processed vegetables. It seems to me like the more natural. I hate using that term because now people come after me, but the more natural something is, the it tends to be more healthy. And when you look at something like olive oil. In order to get olive oil, all you literally need to do is take an olive and squeeze it. You could actually squeeze it with your fingers and produce oil. You can't do that with. Like canola oil or corn oil, right? You ever try and sk- get some corn and squeeze it and see if you get any oil? Yeah, yeah good luck. I milk it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you milk the corn. Just for fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> I don't know. So okay, so let's. What's the deal with these unhealthy fats for or oils? What are they, and then what makes them un- unhealthy? Or what do they do in the body?
3: Yeah, so grain and seed oils are extracted from you know grains, as you mentioned, like corn, legumes, like soy. Um, you know the seeds of grapes i'll give you a really great uh uh story so grape seed oil is now sort of has this health halo right because it's you know people think grapes healthy grape seeds how could they anything be anything but healthy but they were actually a throwaway product of the wine industry a byproduct of winemaking they would take the seeds which were very you know rich in tannin so very bitter um essentially useless useless byproducts and throw them out until one brilliant um you know industrialist realized that you could squeeze the seeds get oil out of them and sell that oil for industrial purposes and then ultimately run it through a bunch of different processes that clean it up, get the bitter taste out, make it scentless and turn it into a uh, into a, into a cooking oil. And now grapeseed oil is on track to become a 600 million dollar a year business. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um the problem with oils like grapeseed oil, corn oil, you know, soybean oil is that they're they're incredibly refined so they go through all these, you know, industrial processes unlike when we produce olive oil which Sal mentioned, you know, it's just made via squeezing an olive um one of the one of the processes that all these oils undergo is called deodorization and that process actually creates trans fats so we know that trans fats are not good for us the most common way in which they would appear in the diet up until just a few years ago was in in the form of partially hydrogenated uh oils but the fda realized that trans fats there's no safe level of trans fat consumption those were banned but trans fats lurk in any of these, you know, grain and seed oils once they go through that that processing, that deodorization step. The other fact um, that I think makes them, you know, unworthy of being included in your diet in any significant way is the fact that they're predominantly polyunsaturated fat. Polyunsaturated fat, there's nothing inherently wrong with polyunsaturated fat. We need them to live, you know, essential fatty acids, omega-3s and omega-6s are, are polyunsaturates, but they're, they're the they're the least chemically stable of any other of any type of uh, any other you know type of dietary fat so they're more chemically unstable than monounsaturated fat and saturated fat and the problem with that is that they just eat, they easily go bad they become oxidized and then when we store them and we expose them to light and oxygen and heat they they basically become damaged fats and damaged fats in essence damages you you know you're basically ingesting Pro-inflammatory substances that then integrate themselves into your, you know, your cell membranes, and also very easily integrate themselves into your brain, because your brain is constructed primarily of polyunsaturated fats.
2: Now, this is where I I feel like you get labeled as a pseudoscience guy, because you take apart something like this, like grapeseed oil, and then mm. and if if grapeseed oil is equal to olive oil in calories, and you eat the right amount of calories, then you're totally fine. And and I, I don't think you would even say that grapeseed oil is that bad. That's going to kill somebody if you, you replace grapeseed instead of olive oil. Do you think it's 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 the assault of all these things that is so damaging and so bad? Or would you actually say that this one thing is that awful?
3: Well, I think with gra- with grapeseed oil, it's a dose makes the poison kind of scenario. Um, and I think a lot of the, the evidence-based, uh, you know, those in the evidence-based camp would say that well these oils you know there's something good about you know there there might be some positive aspect to them in that they're not saturated and so they can lower your cholesterol so they do do that but at what cost you know you're eating these oils that are very easily i mean this is like known that these oils very easily mm-hmm. oxidize and so the other thing is that when you find these oils in nature they're usually bound to antioxidants like vitamin E so whenever you find um, a high concentration or a high proportion of polyunsaturated fats in nature, you're also going to find high levels of vitamin E, you know, vitamin E basically, um, prevents lipid peroxidation, which is what these, which is what these oils undergo when they, you know, over the, over the course of that, that uh, mutation process. And they're stripped of those, of those antioxidants when we produce them. So I think like a little bit here and there, probably not going to be the end of the world in the context of a diet that is replete with, you know, other antioxidants, you know, like mm. vitamin E, carotenoids, um, you know, what have you, but uh, but no, I mean, I do think that they're definitely they're definitely worth avoiding, and and also like the the long term data like isn't really there. So, you know, another thing that I like to remind people of is that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm. So the fact that we don't yet know how the chronic day in and day out consumption of these oils affects our long term brain health. Um, and that is a fact we don't know, is not evidence that there's no effect. Mm. It's just evidence that there's no evidence.
2: Yeah,
0: Right. You know, there was a study that they did. It was an older one where they lowered people's cholesterol um, by switching out their oils. So they went from saturated fat to these these types of fats that we're talking about right now, these um highly processed vegetable oils and they did indeed lower their cholesterol but their health outcomes were worse yeah
3: that's the it's the minnesota coronary survey um they and uh, you know it's been a while since i i you know looked at this so i don't you know i can't recite the exact details but it was basically that they basically took you know a a whole number of patients they that were institutionalized and they swat they switched out all of the saturated fats in their diets to these pollen to to corn oil essentially, they gave them corn oil enriched products, and what they found was that their cholesterol numbers did lower, mm-hmm. but they had a dramatically increased risk of heart attack mm-hmm. um, and death. So, you know, so that's where I think that this is like you know not something that you that you want to mess with. Yeah, um,
0: it's like trying to pa- it's like you passed the test, so you got the right grade, but that doesn't necessarily mean. You're better off. So yeah, I got the cholesterol test right, but now I'm sicker and and not as healthy.
2: So since we're not we're not big fans of of weighing and measuring and tracking your food religiously, do you have like a process? Like if you're helping a family, I know you're not like a coach or a trainer with clients like we are, but. If you're helping a family member or a friend, is there like an order of operation of things like you kind of tell them either to get out of their cupboard or to or to have more of like, have you, do you go, okay, this, 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 and this, but you don't need that. We can have this instead or make sure you're getting more. Is there an order of operation for you when you're helping somebody?
3: Yeah. I mean, I try these days. I try to just get people, you know, to, to move away from ultra processed foods, whether those foods are you know, grain based or even like, you know, I mean, and I'm guilty of this. I, you know, I eat keto processed food products like no tomorrow, you know, it's, it's like, I, I eat them, but I know that they're, it's very difficult for me to control my, my moderation of those foods. It's just that that's how I you know choose to indulge. But generally, like I tell people that, that, you know, the, the more you can move away from ultra processed foods and, and reach instead for minimally processed foods. I think that you're going to be well suited and I also, you know, I mean, I'm I I tend to have a bias for low
2: low carbohydrate diets for most people. I have to stop you at the mentally processed thing because Sal says it a lot too. And I think think you guys are saying that to protect yourself because almost everything is basically processed, but what you're really saying is whole foods. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Like foods with singular ingredients, you know? Right, right.
0: Like banana. Because people hear that, they go like, (laughs)
2: mentally processed, oh, this one has less than that thing. You know, this thing has 100, so this one only has 25, so I'm gonna have this thing. But it's really, mentally processed for you guys means whole Whole foods. foods. Mm -hmm. And the reason why you say that is because almost, even almost all whole foods are processed somewhat. Well, Well, we
3: process when we cook. that's why you exactly know.
2: that's why you i know you'd say that to protect your ass
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> i gotta gotta protect my butt you know? yeah yeah definitely um, yeah whole food whole Keep foods aside. don't have extensive ingredient lists they are the ingredients yeah. you know and um and i think in insofar as we can like learn to cook and process these foods ourselves i think that's great but when foods are are industrially processed and become what food scientists refer to as ultra processed that's where i think you have problem that that problems. That's where it's, you know, it's like you get these food products that take your body, no effort whatsoever to digest. You're absorbing like 100% of those calories. Not only that, but you're absorbing them like really high up in the small intestine. Like it takes your body, like no effort whatsoever to assimilate them. And I think that hormonally probably has some downstream consequences as well, right? Like you're absorbing all of that, that refined grain, that glucose, like, like right away. And I just don't know if your body has the capacity to, uh, to rebound from it quick enough for you to stop eating and to recognize, you know, to have that sort of acknowledgement that like in terms of your satiety that I just ate food.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I've had to regress that advice even further, right? Because I mean, maybe for us or people that are in the fitness and wellness space, it's uh, it's easier to, to digest that and go, okay, I can do that. I'm gonna eat all these whole foods. But what I've had to do is to reduce it all the way down to like a thing because so many people eat such a highly processed diet. I normally will you know, have my client go, okay, this is what I want you to do. Don't change anything. Eat all your food. Eat your Snickers bars. Eat whatever it is you eat during a week and just track it for me so I can see. And then I only pick like one or two things I change because that in itself is so difficult for most people. If to take somebody who eats almost all processed and to radically change them to all whole foods is almost too much. And I've had more success – taking somebody like that and just getting changing one or two behaviors that say, listen, this is so much better for you if you do this and it's still good. You'll enjoy it. Get rid of this, have this instead. I've had so much more success long-term with those people than I have for somebody who comes in and I say, "You here's your, here's your meal plan. You eat you know, 150 grams of protein. You're eating this, 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 and fall this to a T. Mm-hmm. Stick to that for six months. They get in great shape. Those people almost always, like 90 plus percent of those people, put all the weight back on, I have way more success even just changing a few things in someone's diet as far as like their long-term health. Well, it's mm. like
0: it's the difference between like trying to lose weight and, and weight loss just happening. And what I mean by that is like if I if I start removing heavily processed foods, we know I'm going to eat less naturally versus counting calories and macros and trying to eat less. Now both of them will get you to eat less, but which one is more sustainable? Mm-hmm. Honestly, like which one, which situation you want to be in? And this is what it took me a long time to figure this out, Max. Like at, at some point I was like, "Man, my clients are failing mm-hmm. consistently. I need to figure out a way for them to eat less
2: just kind of like it happens on its own." And that's the way that, that Well, I works. think that's it's the psychological part mm-hmm. because yeah. you're not telling them they can only have like that, there's something about that when you say you can only have this. Or, rest- or get that, cut this out, versus, hey, instead of eating this, let's eat this. Mm. And I'm not telling you to weigh it, I'm not telling you to measure it, I'm not telling you to calculate it out, I'm just, I see something in their diet that I think is a poor choice, I can give them a better choice, and if I can just get them to make that a habit, instead of reaching for this, they reach for that, and I can train them to do that, I already know naturally, the calories are gonna come down, they're gonna lose some body weight, and then I know that I'm also playing into the psychology of I'm not telling them they can't eat or restrict, you know, you're that's just changing.
0: That's why I feel like counter- counting calories and staying there, it's like the opposite way to get to the right place. I feel like you're starting at the wrong place. Let's start with the behaviors um, and then start to move uh, in that direction if we need to, um, you know, start counting things. And usually that happens when you're trying to get shredded, but most people could get a good body weight and good health by not even really needing to focus um, on those types of things. Now, you mentioned you tend to navigate, Max, towards lower carb diets. What's the reason behind that?
3: Yeah, I just think, well, first of all, you know, I mean, I start from a place of there of knowing that there's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate, right? And then I titrate my carbohydrates up or down, depending on my activity levels and my performance goals, um, which, you know, I think is very easy to do. Intuitive doesn't require a spreadsheet to do. Um, so I'm eating more sweet potatoes, white potatoes, you know, rice on my sushi, for example. Um, when I know that I'm using those carbs to support my, my energy levels. If I'm just, you know, if I've spent a week basically being sedentary, which, you know, it's been six months of quarantine at this point, like I'm sure that's not that unusual for some people out there. Then I'm trying to eat lower, lower on the carbohydrate spectrum just to manage my, you know, glycemic variability, keep, keep my blood sugar down. Also, you know, like, I think that that there is an effect on, in terms of your hunger levels. You know, if you have like these swings in blood sugar, I think that that affects you know, your hunger. And also, as I mentioned, protein, um, is going to be the most satiating for that. I also think that there's value in sort of always kind of functioning or, or, or at least occasionally functioning in a, in a glycogen depleted state. You know, many people, when they wake up in the morning, they wake up sort of in, in, uh, some degree of ketosis. I think intermittent ketosis is beneficial from a, from a brain health standpoint. I think that, you know, we probably didn't evolve, you know, being, uh, glucose burners 365 days a year. Uh Right. So I think that there's probably some benefit, whether it's on a weekly, uh, daily, weekly, monthly, seasonal basis to, to, you know, allowing ketones, allowing the brain to access ketones for a number of different benefits. We know that it's a very powerful fuel source to the brain. We know that it's not just a fuel source, but it has all these signaling benefits in terms of, you know, boosting blood flow to the brain, boosting, uh, growth factors like BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So for me, that's why I think low carb trumps low fat. And we know that high carb, high fat, you know, is sort of the basis of the standard American diet. So I think you've kind of got of like I think you're I think it's it's best to kind of pick one or the other. Obviously, we have you know populations around the world that thrive on a low fat diet. So I'm not saying that you can't have a low fat diet and thrive, but I also think there's um, benefits to hunger regulation on a low carbohydrate diet. And, uh, and so for me like that, you know, like there's no doubt that low carb diets help people lose weight and, and, you know, achieve their goal body compositions. It's not the only way to get there, obviously, but, um, but I do think that it's helpful. It's a helpful construct for people, people. I think it's pretty easy also for people to, that don't have a lot of nutrition knowledge to be able to identify what has a lot of carbs and what doesn't. And, uh, and so for that reason, it's a good, um, starting framework for somebody to understand, but then going to like the keto side of things, I think a lot of like people in the keto space are just eating too much fat. So it's interesting because my diet is n- it's not a very high carbohydrate diet. It's a lower carbohydrate carbohydrate diet, but I'm also not adding like lots and lots of added fats either. You're um,
0: not going out of your way to like add fat to your fats diet.
3: and oils. No, because fats and oils are a very nutrient poor food. The calories add up. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there's just no need. There's just no need to do that.
0: What's what about time of day? Are you familiar with any research? Um, you know, recent research talking about best times of day to eat, or because you know eating late at night, you hear some people say it's not a good idea because it messes with your circadian rhythm, or you should fast, or what about time of day? Is there anything that you can speak to that? Well,
3: I think what's called uh, early time restricted feeding, so eating an earlier dinner, um, probably has metabolic health benefits, uh, like better blood sugar regulation, better blood pressure. It can be a very useful tool for calorie control. Um, the data on humans doesn't really seem to show uh, a benefit of intermittent fasting for weight loss beyond just calorie control, mm. um, which I appreciate, you know, I don't think it's like a magic tool for weight loss or anything like that, but I do think that there are metabolic health benefits. And a lot of that, I think potentially can stem from the fact that, you know, all of our organs are under circadian influence. And so take insulin, for example, you're more insulin sensitive earlier in the day than you are later on in the day. So,
0: so carbs earlier and less. So yeah, so
3: insulin basically influences glucose management in the body, right? So if you're eating your, all of your carbohydrates earlier in the day, you're probably going to have, you know, an improvement in your, in your just overall area under the
2: curve for insulin and blood
3: sugar.
0: Interesting. Bodybuilders have been talking about eating that way for a long time. Oh yeah, you know have and, they. And, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, so.
2: and and we're talking about so much right now. I feel like the important thing is like, and the the takeaways that I think of is, you know, going back to the behavior stuff. It's like you pick one or two of these things, you implement it into your life, you create a habit around it, and then you build on it, like. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is far more successful than, you know, circling back to the title of this, right, with the whole counting calories and macros and weighing food. I just, you'll you'll have far more success taking it at a slower pace, mm-hmm. picking one or two of the things that we've talked about, implementing it into your lifestyle, creating a behavior and a habit around it, and then building on that with all the other things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That will, I think you'll have far more success long term. Than maybe the short-term success you have of you know staying strict on a diet, measuring, weighing, tracking for three to six weeks. You know, Ma-
0: Max, I did want to ask you kind of one last like maybe group of questions. Uh, more people today, just because of COVID and, and the circumstances, are eating at home. Uh, they're they are buying more processed foods because here's one of the benefits of processed foods: long shelf lives. Like I could buy a bunch of it, store it in the in the cupboard. Um, and it's not going to go bad on like whole foods where if, you know, if I buy too much of it and it'll go bad if I don't eat it, do you have some go-to processed foods? Like if you are going to go that route, what are, are there some better options?
3: Yeah. Well, I love this question because it also, you know, it allows me to sort of illustrate the nuance that not all processed mm-hmm. foods or ultra processed foods even are bad for you. Like we all love a good, like avocado oil based mayo, right? I, I eat dark chocolate regularly, which is a, which is an ultra processed food. Um, yeah, so I mean, like staples for me. I always keep my kitchen stocked with a good dark chocolate. I, I found a one of my favorite bars. You um, like light,
0: light some candles, eat a little dark chocolate, eat a little dark. Yeah, <laughs> me time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> no, I love I love a good dark chocolate. I get like this eighty eight percent bar from uh, Endangered Species, which is a brand I have zero affiliation with them. But um, Consumer Reports, it was either Consumer Reports or Consumer Lab, uh, found that they were the bar that had the lowest level of heavy metals and the highest concentration of polyphenols of like cocoa polyphenols of, of like any other bar that they tested generally. So yeah, it's a Doug. Do you
0: eat that one? Doug's a chocolate fanatic. I buy 88%
3: endangered species. Yeah. I'm the alter eco, 85%, 85% nice. (laughs) I've always, I'm, I try to, I actually, I mean, dark chocolate is a health food. So I eat like a bar a week. Um, at least. And so I have that in the house. I always have sardines, beef jerky, paleo Valley beef sticks. I know you guys love them. Mm-hmm. Huge fan. Yeah. Um, what else? I mean, I, th- I definitely think that there's value in a good protein shake.
0: You're, you're talking about cooking. Cause I know you're, you're, you you do cook a lot and you're kind of, I've seen some of your posts and they look pretty, good. any simple meals that you like to make that are easy. Cause I mean, again, let's or face staples. it. For staples. like of, bachelor yeah. guys. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah. Well, so this isn't a meal, but one of my favorite recipes, it's also, it's so easy to make, so tasty and uh, very good to give to house guests. Like they're, they always tend to be very impressed. All you got to do is melt a, so it's they're dark chocolate covered blueberries. So -hmm. how I make it is I melt a bar of dark chocolate, um, very, very low heat. Like you can kind of pulse the heat on your stovetop, like, you know, maybe 10 seconds on, 10 seconds off. You don't want to burn the chocolate. You just want to like melt it down into a pan and then, like so one bar and then you throw in uh half a t- half a tablespoon of coconut oil and if you're using a very dark bar throw in a tablespoon of like a i use like a, a lakanto monk fruit erythritol based sweetener so you mm. throw in a little bit of extra sweetener just to like you know to up the sweetness if you're using a very dark bar you don't you don't you can omit that if you're using like a 72 percent bar i use 88 percent and so once it's all melted um You throw fresh, rinsed, but dry blueberries into the pan. And then you just make sure that they're all covered. And then you spoon them onto a baking sheet. And then you throw them in the, oh no, before throwing them in the fridge, you sprinkle
2: a little bit of sea salt on top. Oh, Just wow. for that like nice little like salty. man, I got something to go with that. If you make that, oh, yeah. if you make that for your guests, I got something to go with that. You'll like then. So I take a, a Greek like your plain uh, Greek yogurt, strain it over uh, over a cheesecloth overnight, so you get all the liquids out and then whip it and add whatever your favorite sweetener is to give it uh, the sweet taste. So it doesn't have that tardy taste. And then you dip strawberries in it. And it's oh, like, man. yeah, it tastes like whipped cream and strawberry, like a strawberry shortcake type of thing. <laughs> I'd love so. to see you guys feed each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> does sound very I just, romantic. I think he was, yeah. Talking yeah. about the blueberry stuff. I'm like, man, that sounds like something I do with the, the strawberries, blueberry and the green, balls yeah. and my They just it would, it would go together. as like a little thing, you yeah. know? So, so
3: awesome. Yeah. 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 It's just really easy to melt a bar of chocolate down and chocolate coat. Whatever I like cheese wants. nachos.
0: That's my favorite, yeah. <laughs> favorite chat. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, it's right. a home run. Yeah. Well, dude, Max, you're always always fun to talk to you, man. I Likewise. love having you in the studio. Um, your book how's your new book doing, by the way? I mean it's been out now for how long? It's been like six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's
3: doing well. It's called The Genius Life, and it's about all the little things that you can do throughout the course of your day to um improve the way you feel and uh boost your health long term. So it's 360 degree sort of lifestyle approach touches on exercise, physiology, environmental toxicity, diets, circadian biology, nature, um, and even like how we interact with technology. There's a lot in the book. Um, but yeah, it came out back in March and so highly recommend going to check it
0: out. I, I recommend it. It's a great book. And then of course, the original Genius Foods, uh, both. Well, it goes great with this conversation. Uh, yeah, both, it. both great books. It's actually w- probably my most recommended book um, that I recommend to family members because the way you write, it's easy to digest, easy to understand, uh, very pragmatic. Um, and of course, it's all research based. So thank you, stuff. brother. Yeah, no problem, man.
1: Thanks yep. for coming on again. Thanks for having yeah. me. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes MAPS Anabolic, MAPS Performance, and MAPS Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs.